Let's pray. Father God, as the psalmist said, your goodness is abundant. You have particularly worked that good in the lives of your people by your eternal plan of salvation. You've saved us from our enemies, even the enemies we find within our own flesh that war against you and against one another. Blessed are you, Lord, for you have saved us in spite of ourselves, and we now long for that salvation to be completed. As we look forward to a new year and as we set our habits in this first Sunday, we pray that you would encourage us and press us by your spirit that dwells amongst us to be a people that honor your name and declare your glory in all that we do. We pray that 2022 would be a year where your gospel spreads forth even further in Salem and Kaiser and across the Pacific Northwest. We pray this morning for all those across the world who are suffering forms of persecution that we cannot even comprehend in our comfortable position here in the West. Lord, we think we know persecution, but we absolutely do not. Lord, our habit in the West is to flee the second anything hard comes against us. Please forgive us for that. You've scattered us amongst your people across the world, even in places where there is tribulation, so that we might proclaim your name. We pray for those brothers and sisters in Myanmar who were persecuted all the more this last year as a result of the military coup in their country. We pray for brothers and sisters who are gathering today in Iran and Iraq, possibly even in secret because of the threat of losing their lives for their faith. We pray for brothers and sisters in Nigeria, especially in the north, whose churches are listed for attack by the Muslim extremists that run the government there. We pray for brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are being systematically hunted down and massacred in the streets because of their allegiance to your son. And lastly, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso, especially those pastors and their families in the northern country who live in the mindset of martyrdom daily so that they are not taken by surprise. Lord, these brothers and sisters know dearly what Paul meant when he said that we are daily given over to death for the sake of the faith. Lord, we pray for the average number of 13 Christians who will be martyred today because they will not denounce their faith. Please protect them, physically if possible, yes, but even more so, protect their faith and hold them in the palm of your hand so that they might have assurance for their eternal state as they step beyond this mortal life, that they stand fully assured in your Son. Please give them courage and endurance today. Only you know what they need. We're reminded that our only hope as believers in this world is you, Lord. And the psalmist rightly said, my times are in your hand. And so, Lord, in the chaos of this world, we know that to, that to be true. And so we give our lives over to you so that we might persist regardless of what we walk through. Please also be with our brothers and sisters close by here in the Willamette Valley. This morning, we pray especially for Trinity Church in Portland, Pastor Thomas Terry and all their pastors, leaders, and congregants. Here in Salem, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Evergreen Presbyterian their leaders and their pastors. Please bless them with a greater knowledge of your word and love for one another as they meet this morning. And we pray the same for ourselves, Lord. Please let our submission to your word and our resulting love of each other and forbearance with one another be a sign of your spirit dwelling amongst us. As we hear of your righteous judgment this morning, please remind us of the conviction that we deserve that judgment and yet your son died in our place to save us from it. Nothing could possibly explain that but your grace. Let us not take that for granted this morning, and let us acknowledge your present and coming judgment, and that it can also bring us peace. Peace that can help us endure when we see the unjust nature of the world around us, and even our own part in it. Please speak through our brother Nick as he acts as your mouthpiece, speaking your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather now in your name, in comfort and security, a reality that many, if not most believers in this world, do not have. 
By your grace, we come to you now as softened and humble hearts, ready to receive your word. In Jesus' power and name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a joy it is to be here with each of you this morning uh, as we kick off the new year, 2022, which is just hard for me to fathom. I remember yesterday, Y2K, so I know it was a big deal. It is, it is a privilege to be here as we open up God's Word together. This morning we will be looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. Persecution, as Hans was praying about and for other believers in the world, isn't a topic that most of us enjoy and love to discuss. It isn't even something that we would prefer to dwell on. But it does happen. It does take place. And I have this morning a story of one of those instances. Under a tree, close to the house, a young woman sits surrounded by her mother, siblings, and her son, Steve. As we talk with her, she's helping her mother sort grains from one gourd bowl to another. On September 14th, 2018, Paniah went to the market like any other day. She left her cell phone at home, not expecting that anyone would look for her. However, when she returned, there were several missed calls, and she knew something was wrong. As a truck driver, her husband, Paul, was on his way back from delivering goods to the Somalia border. A friend of Paul told me that they had left in the morning, but as they traveled towards a town near the border, they met Al-Shabaab, Panaya says. The radical Islamic group of al-Shabaab is in many ways the Eastern African version of al-Qaeda. Al-Shabaab has terrorized Somalia for the past decade and is recently focusing its attacks on the neighboring country of Kenya. The radical extremists lined up everyone from the truck and demanded that they recite the Shada, a Muslim profession of faith. But as a strong Christian, Paul told the men that he could not deny Jesus and recite this Muslim creed. If you want to kill me, I will remain in Jesus. And if you let me go, I will remain in Jesus, Paul boldly told his abductors. Paul's fellow workers recited the Shaddai, and Al-Shabaab let them go. But Paul remained firm in his conviction. Then they shot him. Paniah shares. What a sobering story. And unfortunately, it isn't a unique story. In fact, it happens much more regularly than we know. Open Doors, a Christian organization that tracks persecution, says that an average of 13 Christians are killed every day. That's nearly 400 Christians dying every month just because they follow Jesus. These men and women have counted the cost of following Christ. They counted it, and in spite of the risks, they unashamedly have proclaimed the name of Christ to death. Now, this is not a daily reality that you and I deal with, not at least literally. I can't remember a day that has gone by where I've actually feared for my life because I'm a Christian. I mean, even on Sundays, when I gather with you, I I leisurely get up out of bed, have a cup of coffee, and get ready for church. There's no fear of dying, no no trying to be secret. Now, to die for Christ, to be martyred, 
it lacks any semblance of justice. And that's what we see with this story of Paul. For those who have died being a Christian, they have committed no crime. They have lived lives of peace and, and died for simply professing the name of Jesus. It is the epitome of evil. We come this morning to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. Revelation 6 contains the six seals that are attached to the scroll. The scroll is the scroll of time that will unfold, and the seals represent power and authority. It is only the one, then, who has the power and authority that can break these seals and is sovereign over the events of time. And as we saw last week, it isn't the strong who possesses this power. It is the lamb, the weak, the lowly, the the slain lamb who is standing. Jesus Christ has the power to open the seals and rolls the scroll of time out. In verses 9 through 17, where we are this morning, we are going to see the fifth and the sixth seal opened. And what we see with the fifth and sixth seal What they show us is that the lamb will bring justice on sin while his people wait patiently. This is the big idea. This this is the title of the sermon. The seals five and six show us that the lamb will bring justice on sin while his people wait patiently. So if you have not already, I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter six and look at verse verse nine, and we'll read through verse 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the, altar of, of, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the earth fell to the sky. And the fig trees, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As Hans said last week, it is very tempting to begin when we read Revelation to look for times and seasons and significant world events that would signal these events taking place. When will these seals be broken? Will I be able to see it? Will I experience it? What will it look like? When we do this, we lose sight of what it is that we are meant to see. We need to look at Revelation through the eyes of first century Christians who were being persecuted. We need to look at it through the eyes of the suffering church. 
a church that is laboring in the world day by day. One who sees suffering, who sees death and persecution and wonders, when will all of this be made right? When will this end? And in doing so, when we look at it through the eyes of those who are suffering, our eyes will be taken on, uh, off of us and put right where they should be, right onto the Lamb of God who has, given, who has been given sovereignty over the entire world and over the events of time. So if you are a note taker, I've divided the sermon into two points. One, Jesus, Jesus' people can rest in their desire for justice in verse 9 through 11. And point two, Jesus will judge the world. So those are the two points that I think this text fits nicely into. Uh, so point one, Jesus' people can rest in their desire for justice. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. Let me read that again so it's just fresh in our minds as we go through it. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. As Jesus cracks the fifth seal, the author looks and sees these souls under the altar who we see have been martyred. What is a martyr? These souls died because of the profession that they took and for the word of God. So they, they died professing Christ. And they all cried together in a loud voice, pleading with Jesus, pleading with God to avenge their blood. Take vengeance on the injustice that we have suffered. Take vengeance for your sake, for the sake of the, your good news. There was no one on earth who would punish the wickedness of sin that had led to their death. And they recognized that it is the Lamb alone who is worthy to bring them justice. As I mentioned earlier, dying as a Christian is a great injustice, right? You, you did nothing wrong except proclaim the name of Jesus. I can hear the cries of the souls of the family of Paul, who we heard earlier, begging and pleading with God to avenge his death, bring his killers to justice, for no one else will. We even heard a little bit ago from Psalm 31, right? Many of the Psalms, are full of the, the psalmist pleading with God, my enemies surround me, I'm suffering, they're, they're, they're persecuting me, they're chasing me, they have, they're attempting to kill me. Take justice on them, Lord. If you have spent any time in the psalms, I'm sure you've noticed this. God, the psalmist wants and calls God to act on his behalf. He yearns for justice in a world full of injustice, of persecution, now, these souls in Revelation 6 that we see are located under the altar. And this altar is a little bit ambiguous to us as readers. Commentators aren't 100% agreed upon what altar this is. But what we, do, what we can see 
is that these souls are not on the altar. They are under the altar. It wasn't their sacrifice that saved them, right? They aren't the ones that had died on the altar. It was another's sacrifice that had saved them. Being killed in Christ is not something that any of us would dream of. If you're like me, you long for the peace and comforts of life, the ease, the enjoyment, the finer things, right? I don't wake up every morning and think, well, I wonder what I can suffer today. What can I inflict on myself? And yet, and yet, the life of a Christian is the life of suffering. It's, it's very clear in Scripture. If you're a Christian, you are going to suffer. You should expect it. Jesus promised this. And even the Apostle Paul, early in Acts, was reminding the early church of this and experienced it himself. Look at Acts 14 up on the, up on the screen. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now this very text happens immediately following uh, the Jews' attempt to stone Paul. So it's written in the context of attempted martyrs, right? Of, of, of persecution. Friend, this was true then and it is true now. It is through suffering, it is through trial, it is through death that one enters into the kingdom of heaven. The souls in Revelation chapter 6 longed and pleaded with God to avenge their lives on earth. We also need to read this text and think about it and ponder it through and in light of what we heard last week, of the previous text in Revelation. Last week, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? You remember that? If you were here, you, you heard this sermon. Now, these dudes rode out and were given permission to take peace, inflict suffering, kill people who were, lived on earth. That was their job. Hey, here's what you guys can do. So as Hans pointed out last week, if you are alive and breathing, you have experienced the suffering that these four horsemen inflict. If you have a loved one who's passed away, if you've experienced uh, hunger, right? People around the world who do that experience hunger. They're, they're experiencing the afflictions of the four horsemen. Being a Christian doesn't bring with it the promise of an easy life. This might be a little hard for us to hear. Life isn't hard, and then you wake up and you find Jesus, and it's, oh, it's all better. It's easy. Being a Christian doesn't save us from suffering at all. But it gives suffering a purpose. It gives it a purpose. We suffer and die for the sake of being set apart for Christ. We join with the saints who are under the throne, crying out that God would come and right the wrongs that we are experiencing and have experienced. And in righting these wrongs, God would prove to the whole world that his people are innocent as he judges those who would persecute them. So it is his, for his glory that he judges and vindicates his people. Friend, if you're suffering now, 
If you're suffering today, maybe from just the hardships of the holidays, from chronic pain, from depression, from anxiety, or just the reality of broken relationships, take heart. There is purpose in that suffering. And we can join with the saints who are under the throne, begging that God would come and judge, that he would make right the wrongs that we have experienced. To right all the wrongs that sin has brought into this world, that one day, that one day we too will be absolved from the suffering and that our accuser will be silenced. But in the meantime, we're here. We wait. And while we wait, we endure. For it is those who endure to the end that will be saved. What, what is this idea of being saved? Well, one doesn't just become saved by confessing with their mouth when, when life gets hard. One is saved... One isn't saved uh, when tribulation just comes out and they cry out for God. One is saved when they, they believe in their heart and they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they believe that it was the sacrifice of the Lamb who died and took their place. Many believe that and fill the church, fill churches in America who believe that salvation comes through just praying a prayer. You know, if I just pray a prayer, if you, if you repeat these words, you're going to heaven. But let me be clear, there are no magic words that will save you. It is in the context of this portion of revel that revelation is applicable to all of us. Now, we might not be clear under, or under the clear threat of death for proclaiming Christ. But in the context of this chapter and the rest of revelation, we all suffer under the effects of sin. And it is those who die in Christ that will be saved. For only those who endure to the end will find their resting place in the throne of God. And in verse 11, we see the response of the lamb. Right? We have these souls crying out, what's the lamb going to do? What is God going to do for them? Well, he gives them white robes and tells them to rest a little while longer until the exact number of Christians are killed. The answer to the saints' call for justice, come avenge us, is patience. The white robes indicate a purity that can only be given through Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice, and these robes then clothe the people of God. And after the robes are given out, the souls in the, under the altar are told to just wait. Just wait. Now, if you're like me, that's the hard part, right? Like, ah, come on, I know we can do this. And notice how long they're told to rest. Until the exact number of souls die that are destined to die. It is only God who knows when that will be. Now, there have been many who have claimed to know when Jesus is coming back. There have been many who have claimed to say, oh, it's in the year... 2000 and uh, it was in 2008, I think there was one. Or the, the Mayan calendar, you know, it's running out. Jesus is coming back. But there is no way that anyone can know the exact time. And only God knows that. And one of the determining factors is that the exact number of people who die, die in Christ. <clears throat> God 
has sovereignly decreed when he will return. God's purpose in this is purposeful. Until the time that God, that the, until the time of, until that time, the people of God wait. We wait, longing for justice, but resting in the sacrifice of Jesus. For those who are in Christ, this is where we are. While we are not literally under the the the, the uh, altar in heaven, we are clothed in righteousness. We are experiencing the injustice of this world by sin, just sin's weight in our lives. And we are longing for God to make it all right. When we see sin, or when we see the effects of sin, our, our tendency is to jump into action, right? I mean, we see that in the text. Wait, be patient. So the opposite of that inclination is to take action. That's our action. That's our that's that's our uh, proclivity too. That's our tendency. Whether it's the injustice of racism, whether it's poverty or abuse, fatherlessness, famine, martyrs from uh, on the other side of the world, our tendency is to jump into action and to desire and to because we know inside of us that this world that we were created for better, we were created for more. And so we do that. We jump into action and, and, and bring healing. And so if you are a person who longs to help, who desires to do good in this world, keep it up. I'm not saying stop at all. I would encourage you to keep it up, but keep it in right perspective. The world would have us believe that you, that we, need to make up for something that's been done, to pay for some, to atone for the sins of the present, the sins of the past, to cover those over. Now, there were sins and atrocities that take place today and in the past. We can't uh, minimize those. Sin does happen. But the reality is, is that as a Christian, we are called to wait patiently, begging that God would come and judge sin. And so the posture of our lives is a dependence on God to act. The wor- this world brings suffering, and ultimately there is no relief and will be no relief until Jesus returns. Sure, we might be able to put a little pain relief, right? A little bit of a, a Tylenol for the headache. But we, in and of ourselves, cannot cure what ails this world know that the short of this side of heaven, the wrongs that we see will never be permanently fixed. The cause of this world's problems, the cause of our own troubles, the cause of persecution, the cause of our sin is, the, is sin that brings destruction, sin that brings death, and it is sin that needs dealt with. And so without calling sin, sin, without pointing it out, all we, were, we are doing is presenting the world with a placebo, making them feel all right as they head towards hell. God's plan, as it unfolds, doesn't mean that he has forgotten about justice. All he's called his people to do is wait for that justice to come about. It doesn't mean that he doesn't hear the cries of his people, for he will judge as the scroll of time is unraveled Sin and the effects of sin have had their turn in disrupting the beauty of God's creation. And this is where the tone and the text of our 
of, of, the, of Revelation chapter 6 gets heavy. For God hears his people, and he will right the wrongs that they have suffered. Let's look now at verses 12 through 17. Uh, this is point two. Jesus will judge the world. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So here we see the ultimate answer to the prayers of the souls under the altar. Jesus will judge, and his judgment will be thorough, complete, and final. Jesus as a judge of of sin isn't a depiction that we truly appreciate, especially around the holiday season, where the world is just fascinated with sweet baby Jesus. The terrifying Son of God doesn't give us the warm fuzzies that we want. This is a reality, though, that we cannot hide from. And here in Revelation 6, we see in verses 12 through 14 that, that creation is judged in verses 12 through 14. And in verses 15, we see that man is judged. So creation is judged in verses 12 through 14. And as the lamb opened up the sixth seal, we see judgment unleashed. Every soul that is destined to be under the altar is there. The reality is that sin has permeated every fiber of our world. Look around. Sin is everywhere. Things are not the way they were created to be. And the imagery here that we get in verses 12 through 14 is the reversal of creation. In the beginning, God created. He spoke it into existence. It came about. Here we see it being undone, it being pulled away, stripped down. This is very similar to other texts that deal with judgment as well. Look at Isaiah 34.4. It's on the screen. There are several parallels in Isaiah 34.4 with Revelation 6.13 and 14. All of the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All of their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. You see that? Very similar imagery taking place. So the imagery of judgment that we see here in Revelation is throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I have some other references up on the screen that you are free to write down, look up, ponder, meditate on throughout the rest of this week that carry that same imagery of judgment that we see here in Revelation 6. We also have many parallels here in Revelation between uh, the curses in, in, in Egypt, right? If you think back to the, the Egypt story narrative. When God spoke of coming judgment on a nation, much of the similar language was used. And God promised judgment, he followed through. God is true to his promises. 
his promises to save and his promises to judge. God is true to judge sin. But why? Why will creation experience God's judgment? Well, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, that sin was far-reaching. It didn't just affect Adam and Eve. No, it messed and undid creation itself. It threw the whole world under the curse of sin. For no longer was the world the way God intended it to be, but it was under the weight of sin. Look uh, with me at Romans 8, 20-22. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation is being judged. Creation says, ah, this sin is heavy. We are being, it's being undone. It, it, it shouts that to us. There were consequences for Adam's sin. There were consequences, dire consequences, death. And it is in Revelation that we see God will destroy creation because of the effects of sin. And it is the, it is on, it is the judgment of creation then that precedes the, and signals the judgment on humanity that we see in verses 15 through 17. In verse 15 of Revelation 6, the author gives us a clear view of who will be under judgment. Who is God going to judge? Well, this list of people in verse 15 includes everyone. No, no one is left out, right? When, when the final judgment comes, of God comes, people will flee to the mountains, the rich, the poor, the slave, the free, the ruler, those who aren't rulers. That's you and me. We find ourselves in this list. And when it comes, people will flee to the mountains and hide in caves among the rocks of the mountains. But we all know from the stories of Adam and Eve to Jonah how well hiding from God works out. Instead of being able to hide, they know that God's gaze is on them. They cry out that the rocks would just put them out of their misery. Fall on us so that we may hide. God will undo creation in the same manner that it began, showing his full presence and letting sin show itself to be afraid of the light. This imagery is rich. It's, it's rich. And, and we continue to see imagery from the Old Testament he used here out of Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So see, the, the author is using the, the, hyper, the, the hyperbolic language out of the Old Testament to describe what the final judgment of God is going to be like. Those who deny God with their life have made a habit of worshiping idols will continue 
to pursue safety in the things of this world. They will continue literally to pursue safety in the world itself, deep inside of the world. That's the imagery that we're getting here out of Revelation. To the very last breath, they will not recognize God or his salvation. And the souls from under the altar cry out for God to justify them. The people on earth cry out to the earth to hide them. Their idolatry is rich. Hide us from the one who sits on the throne, from the sovereign creator, from the wrath of the lamb. Now, a wrathful lamb is a clear oxymoron. Two things that go together, but they don't appear to go together, right? They're contradictory. Small crowds, old news, pretty ugly, good morning, this, this, this whole scene reminds me of a scene out of Monty Python and the rabbit, right? This little rabbit, this little rodent was deceptively strong. He wasn't much to look at. And despite warnings from the guide, the men advanced. And I'm sure that if you've seen the movie, you know what happens next. The rabbit was very dangerous. The men were warned, but they chose to press their luck against an animal that appeared to be very unimposing what we see here is the exact same. People pressing their luck against a lamb who, ah, a lamb, who's, he's not going to hurt me. He won't actually judge. Revelation 6 concludes with the, the question. It's a rhetorical question. Who can stand? And the answer to that question is clear for those who have read the chapter. The souls who can stand in the wrath of the Lamb are those who are kept safe under the altar, saved by the, 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 the Lamb himself. Amen. Revelation, a, little, a chapter earlier, if you turn back in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 6, we see this Lamb. Once again, just the imagery is rich. I had to pull this out. The Lamb is doing what? Standing. The lamb is the one standing, and it is those who are in the lamb, who are covered by their, his sacrifice, that will be able to stand when the day of judgment comes. We want a Jesus who is a lamb. We want a meek, mild, gracious Jesus, pats us on the back, dusts us up, puts us back in the game. But what we see in Revelation chapter 6 is that this lamb will judge. And that judgment will bring the justice on the sin of this world. Amen. And the wrath of the Lamb, it is final judgment. It isn't arbitrary lashing out at the world in anger and that subsides and he goes his way and says, oh, I just messed up. I, I wish I wouldn't have gotten angry at them, right? Like some of us, maybe, when we lash out at people or our children. When we contemplate who God is, one fatal mistake that we tend towards and that we can live in, is that we make God like us. We make God like us. Well, this wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, that's just, that's really bad. That's scary. Right? Like, I remember, I've seen people get angry before and wrathful, and that's not right. But God is not like you and I. God is not human. He is very different. And so Jesus' anger, Jesus' wrath is not like yours and mine. 
It isn't arbitrary. The wrath of the Lamb is the pouring out of justice on sin, justice on a world that has caused pain and destruction, pain and destruction that many of us can realize and know very clearly. And so to understand God's judgment, we need to better understand sin. Sin isn't just bad actions. We mess up and, oops, I'm not going to do that again. It is a full break of the law of God. And when the law is broken, when any good law is broken, a good ruler will punish the offender. There must be consequences. Someone has to pay when the law gets broken. And so what we see in Revelation is the full brunt of the law coming down and punishing those who would break it. But in all of this, there's good news. The good news is that the lamb, the one who brings judgment, is also the one who provides salvation. The lamb, Jesus Christ, took judgment of God, the wrath of God on himself. He hid in a cave, and instead of hiding from God and begging for death, he came out alive and victorious over sin. It was that judgment that satisfied the judgment of God, the wrath of God. For on the cross, when the earth looked very similar to the imagery that we see in Revelation 6, the wrath of God was poured out on the Lamb. And it is through the shedding of his blood, of his blood, that we can be confident when the day of judgment comes. For we can be safe from the wrath of the Lamb. And this is the good news that God has graciously given to us and warned us and says and clearly says to us, here's how you can find safety. As we contemplate this text and, and apply it to our lives, here's two clear responses I think that uh, are called for us today. When we hear that Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, who was slain, will also unleash the wrath of God on sin. It demands these responses from us. And to respond in ambivalence is to actually reject it. There is no, eh, that's great, and and being ambivalent to this. For the wrath of God is real, and it is is here and coming. So what do we do when we, we, we see this? Well, we ought to respond in repentance. So if you are here today, don't ignore the good news. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that he alone has eternal life. So if that is you, if you are here today and you have never realized that I believe that before, the Bible's clear. You've got to tell somebody. Belief is not silent, for it tells, it, it, it proclaims its belief to others. And this is ordinarily expressed through baptism and the joining of a local church. And it is then in the context of a local church that we grow and are encouraged and find the patience to wait and to endure the suffering that sin has brought. The truth that Jesus Christ will come back to judge sin can be intimidating news. The fact that the world is filled with sin and under judgment is like the diagnosis of a disease. We are sick and need healed. But the good news is that that disease is curable. 
the wrath of the Lamb can be escaped by submitting to Jesus Christ, turning from sin and repenting. The second point I think we should get out of this, the response that we should have when we read about the judgment of God is gratitude. For those who are in Christ, who have already trusted in him for salvation, the message of judgment shouldn't cause us to feel guilty. It shouldn't strike fear in our hearts, but we should be grateful. We can have a gratitude for what God has done through Christ. And this gratitude can affect and spill over into every area of our lives. We no longer must live with the burden of sin. We no longer need to be held captive by it. We can turn from being fearful of of what others think of us or from the grief of pain that the world only seems to bring. The reality of the judgment of God should cause us also to be better evangelists. I mean, that's very clear in this text that Jesus is going to judge the world, but before then, there are a set number of people who are going to respond. There are a number of souls that will die, and then the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed. Well, if that wrath of the Lamb hasn't happened yet, that must mean that there's more evangelism to do. We need to tell people the good news. We need to tell people what it means to be a Christian. So we have a job to do. As Christians, we have a job to do. We are to tell, the peop- to tell people the good news. And in that way, we participate in the plan of God. So as we close, we will continue to hear of stories of people dying for the faith. We will. We will continue to experience pain and suffering. But for those of us in Christ who have responded by faith and repentance, we can be grateful that the brokenness of this world will be set right. Jesus will come. He will judge sin and he will make all wrongs that we've seen and that we've experienced right.